Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm on Zoom looking at my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Martin Collier. Hello, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us to discuss all that's new in the world's largest archive of music journalism is acclaimed critic, author and professor Evelyn MacDonald. Welcome, Evelyn. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, everybody. Hi. In this episode, we're going to ask our guest about her writing career to date and particularly about the subject of her brand new book, The World According to Joan Didion. We're also going to hear clips from an audio interview with the motel's Martha Davis, and we'll be paying tribute to jazz giant Carla Blay. Evelyn, fittingly, you are, as we speak, I think, in Sacramento, the birthplace of Joan Didion. I am indeed. I gave a talk at the Center for Sacramento History last night about the book, which was, you know, great. It was a, it was a great turnout, really interesting event. Needless to say, very smart questions and interest from an audience that knows about Joan intimately, living great. where she spent so much of her life. And I love this city. I really, I don't think I'd ever been here before I researched this book, even though I'm a native Californian. I just, I don't remember maybe as a child. It's a beautiful city, the city of trees, they call it. And I drove, I was in Berkeley the night before where Joan went to college. I was tracing Joan's footsteps. Great. And I drove here on the back roads, on the levee roads through the Sacramento Delta, which is also an area I didn't know, which is I am so in love with that area. It's <laughs> so interesting. And if you've if you've read Run River, Joan Didion's first novel, you just feel like you're in that that book. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Well, any sort of Calif- any road trip in California is is always a good thing. I think um, <sighs> there's absolutely. so many. Yeah, <laughs> take us back to a moment in your early life, Evelyn, when pop music reached out and grabbed you where did it start for you it was michael jackson king of pop ah. um i mean it was specifically the jackson five it was uh, they had that a cartoon show on saturday mornings and i you know had a childhood crush on michael jackson <laughs> so did i uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's i mean you know like me and how many millions of other people eventually right and I, that, I think that was my first album, was a Jackson 5's Greatest Hits album. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Not particularly uh, something unusual or <laughs> rarefied. But... No, no. Still sounds great today, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, every single song in that album still you can listen to <laughs> yeah. Yeah. a million times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. When did you first think about writing about pop music? Well, I did start writing about it, I think, even as early as middle school for our, our newspaper. Definitely in high school, I was doing album reviews and interviewing bands. And I was reading, writing about music. I was reading Rolling Stone. I was reading books. I was reading Dave Marsh. I was reading, you know, Born to Run. I was reading the Milwaukee Journal. I lived in a small town in Wisconsin. So pretty early on, and then it was really in college that, you know, I like, okay, what am I going to do when I graduate? And I just said, well, I love music and I love writing and I'm going to write about music. And I, I, I did music. My major was American studies, but I focused on popular music. On our Facebook page, David Camp piped up and said that you commissioned the first piece he ever wrote for, I guess, one of the Providence papers. Have I got that right? 
I think he edited me is actually uh, maybe but maybe maybe I also maybe he wrote for one of the zines that I did. A resistor, Um, maybe. Yeah. Well, no. uh, Even back in college, we did we did something for the radio station, I think, and then I had a zine with um, some musicians called OK Go Now, (laughs) which was I don't know. (laughs) It was an era, but yeah, Dave. I think Dave edited me at, at the the Brown Daily Herald. Okay, okay. Well, whatever the the ultimate truth is, it's great to have both of you (laughs) on Rock's Back Pages. I mean, you've had a a stellar career in journalism. I mean, you were the the music editor at The Village Voice. You were the pop critic at the Miami Herald. You now teach at Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles. And a number of amazing books. I mean, the Rock She Wrote book that you co-edited with with Anne Powers is a, is a really important book about you know women writers and women in music. If we bring it up to like the more recent past, like ten years ago, I mean, a number of us have read your fantastic Runaways book, Queens of Noise, and you know that sort of dovetails a little bit into the Californian theme of this episode, the new book. You quote Machiko Kukutani saying that uh, California, something like California is owned by Joan Didion. I mean, she is one of the great sort of writers about Californian culture, isn't she? For anyone listening who's not au fait with her remarkable you know, body of work, her essays, her books, can you give us a sort of capsule summary of what she was, what she was all about, what Joan Didion was all about, Evelyn? Right. So, you know, Joan Didion emerged in the 1960s in the era of new journalism and an era in which, you know, culture was experimenting and and changing in in all kinds of ways, including in journalism. And so uh, writers like Joan and Tom Wolfe and Gay Talese, um, uh, Barbara Goldsmith, Robert Criscow even, right? He's in that first anthology of new journalism, the Dean of Rock Critics, were really trying to bust the staid boundaries of journalism and also question the whole notion of there being a neutral objective voice, right? So they were saying, hey, you know, there's no, everybody has a point of view and we're going to make that clear. And we're also going to write journalism that is, is fun and enjoyable to read and that has literary qualities like point of view or narration, or dialogue. <laughs> mm. And, you know, and Joan was probably the best of all of those writers. I think that's what the test of time has really proven about Joan, that her, because she she was an incredible reporter, but then she also was so precise and inventive and accomplished in the writing style that it just still resonates you know i teach it to my students and they fall in love you know she's out there in social media that uh there's just a whole world that is caught on to joan multiple generations so yeah and so she she merged out out of that and then she became she also wrote novels she actually was writing novels run river came out in, Mm -hmm. in the 60s and she became a really serious journalist for the new york review of books and then she wrote what many people know is The Year of Magical Thinking, which was her memoir about her husband's death, her sudden death from a heart attack, and then her daughter, Quintana Roos, at the time illness and then 
eventually died actually mm. after the book mm. was finished. Mm. Yeah. That was a bestseller and National Book Award. Yeah, it made her more famous than, than ever, didn't it? Mark? Yes, I mean, the lazy characterization of new journalism is that the journalist inserts themselves in the story. At least that's one sort of aspect of it, which she does. I mean, I've reread Slouching Towards Bethlehem yesterday, actually. You know, I've been rereading the last couple of days of the book. But the article itself, particularly about San Francisco and, 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 and Summer of Love, or the Summer of Not Much Love, is, is very apparent from the writing. And she does insert herself in it, but in a very dry and sort of reserved way. She doesn't sort of thrust herself into the narrative, but she is there. Is that sort of fair to say? Yeah, she's not making it about her. Right. And, and, and she says it very well at the, in the opening of the White Album, where she says, I'm you know, writing you, to you from the Royal Hawaiian Hotel in lieu of filing a, a divorce, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is a pretty great opening league. Um, and she says, you know, I tell this, you this, you know, and so that you understand exactly who I am and mm-hmm. where I'm, I'm coming from. And so you can under, you know, know whether you want to trust what I'm saying. That's very beautiful. And, and, you know, and then the backstory to that is that she, this was her first column for Life magazine. She was all excited. I'm a columnist for Life magazine. She's like, okay, great. You know, I'm going to go to Vietnam. That's obviously the most important story of our time. And her editor was like, oh, no, no, no. The, the boys are in, in Vietnam. You, mm-hmm. you, just, you just stay yeah. right there and, and you know, don't worry. You're pretty hit a little head about that war. Yeah. Um, and so that's what she did instead. Yeah, yeah. Martin, I know you're a big Didion fan. Uh, oh, yeah. When did you first discover her and what Ooh. was it about her writing that got your attention? Well, I think it was the White Album that I first read, uh, but a few years after it had come out, we were friends with Americans who liked Joan Didion so, and had left the book at our house when they stayed. There's something so compelling about her journalism because it, is, it isn't a kind of look at me or I want to be in with this gang. It's, it's a very sceptical, reserved kind of thing. And I love this quote. She says, I like to sit around and watch people do what they do. I don't like to ask questions. Rock and roll people are the ideal subject. They will just lead their lives in front of you. And <laughs> that, that when she talks about being at the Doors recording session, there's, that's such an amazing piece of writing. Mm-hmm. You know, when they, someone says, we need a fuzz box, and someone says, Buffalo Springfield are down the corridor, we can borrow one of theirs. And then at some point, Morrison's just sitting there with a girl on his lap and he lights a match. And it, it's kind of like that observed thing that she absolutely captured the boredom of a certain kind of part of the rock music business. It wasn't the, it, the, even the girl in it, it's, it's so kind of washed out and strange. And I just think she was like that on, on lots of subjects. I mean, it, not just about the music business or writing, but I particularly loved her slightly, not aloof. I think aloof is probably the wrong word. I think you, detached. It's detached and attached at the same time. I always think it's kind of yeah. It's a very it's a very neat kind of trick. I always think of it. I mean, she's she's observational. She's just she's yeah. observing. She's you know the fly on on the wallpaper with a notebook. <laughs> and she <laughs> yeah. said that about herself. She said, you know, I'm I'm famously reserved, and you know, and she was famously a very woman of a few words in person. Like she she stored it all up. But she stored it all up in her head and then, you know, spewed it on the typewriter or the, yeah. the notebook or the computer. There is a detach, but there's not. A- and I think that's also part of why she puts herself in it so that she isn't just, so there is an engagement. 
and a report. Yeah, that, I, I actually just reread the was rereading the Doors piece too. It's hilarious. It is, and it's so perfectly captures a recording <laughs> session, you know, to this day. And and also at the end, she's just like, she's like, yeah, I didn't go back. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Couldn't make it through the three week. <laughs> waiting for the sun. Given the sort of deep scepticism that's evident in the essay slouching towards Bethlehem, and that's actually written in the spring of 67, so it's kind of, it's just before the whole summer of love thing. I mean, do you think it's significant that she gravitated towards the doors, you know, in the context of Los Angeles and her themes of sort of, you know, the L.A. noir, if you like, kind of proto-noir take on L.A. and Hollywood? Do you think it's significant that she wound up in a in a recording studio with the doors? Well, I will say that, you know, her, one, her other most famous music piece is about Joan Baez, right? So so that's a pretty different subject and and. I mean, still California, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, yes. Northern Bay Area versus, you know, Southern. And, you know, she talks about in the Doors piece, I, I think she was drawn to their, you know, sex death, as as she calls it. Um, she Certainly she had a, a bleak outlook on life in, in many ways. I mean, she wrote about what she called atomization, right? The, the feeling yes. that we were all being separated from each other and, and going in, you know, the widening gyre. That's why she quotes slouching towards Bethlehem, the, the poem, the Yeats poem. Mm. So I think that she felt like the doors were expressing that honestly, as opposed to uh, the false hippie rhetoric of, of peace and love. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about the slouching towards Bethlehem thing is that publicly, at least there was this notion of San Francisco the oncoming summer of love, the, the flower children, the beauty of it all. And she very accurately reports on the disintegration of the Haight-Ashbury, which, you know, subsequently, I mean, I, I, for my sins, I'm a Grateful Dead fan and read a great deal about that sort of period. Uh, yeah, for my sins. At that point, all the bands are starting to leave. They're all getting out. They're all sort of moving to Marin County and so on, getting away from the city because – Nasty, the bad drugs are coming in, heroin's coming in, speed's coming in. But the public view of it was entirely different. She's spot on. It's an extraordinarily Mm. accurate piece of reporting. Mm -hmm. Jasper, as someone of a younger generation, I know you've had the White Album for a few days, and I just wondered how you've responded to Didion's writing. I think everyone has said elements that really jumped out at me already. But I think when I sort of said detached earlier, when I threw that word in, I suppose what I kind of meant was unsentimental. She Mm -hmm. puts herself in it, but she's not, she doesn't, it's not that she doesn't care, but it's because she cares about it as a way of describing it and as a way of kind of engaging with it as she watches it happen. But it's not like she's having a whale of a time or she's constantly talking about her emotional state or anything like that. And so it becomes incredibly compelling because it's all so tightly written and so well written and, you know, funny in its dryness that it, it's sort of the perfect foil to the romanticized historical view of the 60s. Mm. Mm. I love mm. that you said the word unsentimental. I think that's exactly right. And Joan was someone who wanted to go beyond the conventional narratives and, and didn't want to fall for, you know, the tried and true 
and really came to question like the own narratives of, of her life that she was fed as a fifth generation Californian about California as the golden land. A lot of her work was actually about California as not as golden <laughs> as we think, right? Mm. Um, yeah. And at the and that the gold is actually is the ore gold, and was that's what that's why we're the golden state that because we were settled because of the gold rush, um, which was not really a great. Um, period <laughs> not, not in, in history in, in so many ways, especially for the, the Native Americans, right? Mm. But one thing I did discover it's that well, she was not sentimental. She was very loving and warm and, and empathic and kind in her interactions with people, if, if you know, also a kind of shyness or a quietness. I, th- I think that that does come through. She's, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, absolutely relation to this is actually possibly my favourite book of hers is The Year of Magical Thinking, as you said earlier, about, about her husband's death and about the illness of the subsequent death of her daughter. And it's such a strong subject, but she manages to be... Unsentimental is the wrong word, but she never sort of pushes her emotions into the writing. I mean, she describes herself almost as a third, you know, as a third party, which is an extraordinary thing to do, given how quickly she wrote that book after his death. It was pretty rapidly, wasn't it? It's like three months of actual writing. It took her nine months to be able to write, and then she sat at a typewriter. And And it's an extraordinary piece of writing. Without ever sort of, there's no soppiness, there's no sentiment in it it at all. She is looking at herself almost like as a third party, and it's really Mm. something extraordinary. Mm. Mm. It's not like it's cold, though. At the same time, you know, I think I think no. you said that just now, Evelyn. It's you know, there's still, there's this humanity to it, nevertheless. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So your book is obviously there was an earlier Didion biography from 2015, the last love song. Your book is is structured very thematically. Every chapter has a theme that's sort of specific to you know the multi multifaceted person that she was, and in many ways, I think a woman of sort of contradictions, which are really interesting. You talk, I think, in one chapter about her style and the fact that you know, right towards the end of her life, she she became you know even more of a sort of style icon. One of the things that really, really amuses me that really sums up Joan Didion is the fact that. She was planning to write a book about Linda Kasabian, as you know, one of the Manson girls. And she took Kasabian to I Magnin or Mannion, however you pronounce it, I Magnin in Beverly Hills to buy her a dress before before the trial. Which she wore at the trial. Which she wore at the trial. I just think that's that just sums up sort of the whole the whole of Didion's kind of uh attitude to life and culture (laughs) uh she did love a good dress (laughs) um she she was very interested in in fashion i mean she you know she was a girl growing up here in sacramento and she and her cousin would pour through you know issues of of vogue magazine Mm. and she ended up that that was her first real job she actually wrote for the sacramento Bee a little bit here too but her first real job was working at Vogue as, you know, basically an editorial assistant, writing, you know, small copy, then bigger copy. And she, you know, went to photo shoots and observed how those were run, which not unlike a recording session, you know, places where people go to to turn (laughs) their brains off. Um, And she, she said that, you know, she learned how to pose for, the cameras by watching those those photo shoots and you know and she clearly 
did know how to pose for a camera. There, you know, that is part of the legend of of Joan Didion is is these iconic images by Julian Wasser and you know so many great photographers. Yeah, it's funny though. Even in those really early Vogue pieces, her voice is is kind of there, isn't it? It's not. It's not something that she needs to d- develop. I mean, she obviously does develop it, but but he, those first Vogue pieces, which aren't even things that she might have wanted to write, they're, they're just things she's been assigned. Or there's a story where there was a cover line on Vogue, but the writer didn't deliver it, so she had to step up and, and right, write on this self-respect. piece. <laughs> right, right. It's just from the right, headline. and they're kind of like self-help columns, basically. Yeah. You know, but she turns them into like little literary essays, and her right voice is in there. And yeah, yeah I I found. I mean, some of those have uh, you know, on self-respect is is, is in a slashing towards Bethlehem, I think. But uh, I also found some that you know haven't been anthologized, and I found a great piece that she wrote for Mademoiselle, actually. But she was she was at Mademoiselle for one summer in college before she even went to Vogue. But then she wrote this while she lived in New York. And it was, it was actually really devastating, a critique of the media industry in San Francisco and its its failure to employ women is embedded into that story. But also mm. her love of California still comes through in that piece. You can see why she went back. Yeah. Mm. I mean, she has her detractors. It, it, it must be said, I don't know if you've ever read that savage essay that John Law wrote in automatic vaudeville which is which is not it's about her and john gregory dunn as yeah sort of name dropping kind of you know la scenesters you know who who were you know wanted warren Beatty at their parties and all of that i mean it's really really withering and and i and i it it, it seems it's funny because you know you look at the pictures of her and there's this sort of studied coolness she never smiles in the photographs and that's always slightly bothered me i actually watched an interview with, uh, uh, with her on youtube this morning she was talking about after henry when the book uh, when that book had just come out and actually She's really charming in it, and you just you can see the sense of humor that's there. It's very controlled, but it's there. You know, it's it's very dry, but she smiles, she she laughs, and you kind of you can see that the photo is the pictures that Wassa took of her, for example. They're sort of a persona that she created as a public face. Maybe would you say? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. I think she didn't want to be like, oh, high smile for the camera. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty lady. Um, yes. You know, there are yes. there are photos of her smiling, and and they're very lovely, but but they're they are rare. I haven't read that essay. Now I'm going to go read that John Lahr essay. Um, <laughs> I think you know, and definitely they were kind of scene stirs. They entertained a lot. Mm-hmm. They loved to have parties. She loved to cook. She loved to. If not prepare the meal, at least prepare the menu. They hobnobbed with all kinds of people. You know, Warren Beatty was actually supposedly in, in love with her. So it was him wanting to go to those parties. So, <laughs> but that is that is a huge part of the glamorous life. You know, Janis Joplin came to a party at their uh, Hollywood house that was for uh, the Tom Wolfe Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test Book release mm. party. Always they had houses that welcomed guests and they had uh, but she but if but let's see but that, so part of it was and they, they also loved to gossip her and john gregory dunner her husband and he was the outgoing gregarious one and 
she was not. But I also think that they sincerely cared about the people that came to their parties. They had very deep friendships. And I've read a lot of letters and notes that she wrote to people that were very warm and, you know, uh, asking questions and, and just very generous. And she, you know, she gave people pressed flowers or put pressed flowers in, in their book. She loved flowers, right? There's maybe not a sentimental side to her, but yeah. Maybe John Law's just envious because he never got invited to the party. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, except his dad was the cowardly lion in The oh, Wizard yeah, of Oz. So he, 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 he was, he was <laughs> But, I mean, look, after all, I mean, both Didion and John Gregory Dunn, you know, made most of their money out of Hollywood, didn't they? I mean, you know, they, they rewrote movies, they wrote screenplays, you know, she she was, I mean, The Panic in Middle Park, for example, all that stuff. I mean, so, so you know, they, they were part of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like they yeah. were trying to get into the, the, the sort of scene, no. you know. I think that's about- what, are you, what are you supposed to do? Not go, not, 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 not engage. I mean, it's, no, it's, it's, exactly. it's, it's, I think you're right, Mark. There's a, there's a lot of envy there. Another thing that really endears me to her was, so, I mean, I read Slouching in, I think, 1979 when a Penguin, this Penguin paperback came out in a sort of revised edition, and it really did bl- blow my mind. And then when I was at university, my friend Adam Bolton would subscribe to the New York Review of Books. So I was reading her, you know, extremely long investigative pieces in in the New York Review, and they were absolutely brilliant. They were mesmerizing, you know, and 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 her politics really moved, seemed to kind of move leftwards, didn't they? And for someone who'd voted for Barry Goldwater in 1964 and were worshipped, had a huge crush on John Way. <laughs> As well, um, um, I, I, she she certainly her her politics certainly moved leftwards from there, and I think most, perhaps most famously, the the very very long piece she wrote about the Central Park Five that in you know nineteen the nineteen eighty nine mugging that happened in the gross miscarriage of justice that happened there, would you say that 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 kind of made her gave her even more kind of gravitas as as a political writer. Yeah, absolutely. She she really entered a, you know, almost second act of, of her writing career when she was writing for uh, the New York Review of Books and working with the editor Robert Silvers. I devote a whole chapter of the yes. book to to that. Yeah, I, that's I think great. It's, great chapter. It, yeah, and it's called Jogger. Uh, as you mentioned before, the, the chapters are all organized around themes. Um, it, it does flow some, somewhat chronologically, but I did tease out different sing, single object themes that reoccurred in her work and so so that one's jogger the one about the death of her husband is is more because you know she wanted to go to the see the autopsy of him yeah. which gives you some idea of um of her her character her lack of sentimentality shall, shall we <laughs> yeah. say yes um, <laughs> but but yeah no she and you know i think some of this was their daughter was you know an adult now and that she had time to do some really serious, serious journalism, including going to cover the war in El Salvador, including, you know, which became the book uh, Salvador, including writing about Miami when it was on the cusp of emerging as this really important global city that yeah. um, an American city completely shaped by immigration, particularly by Cubans. And so these pieces for the New York Review of Books became then then short books. And then the piece about 
the joggers, uh, sentimental journeys, like 20,000 words, biggest piece of the New York review of books that ever mm-hmm. written. I think the whole issue was, was dedicated to that story and, yeah. and which she not only, you know, just lambasts the police, the judicial system, New York media. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. really the entire history of New York <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's class structure and it's, it's racial segregation, which, and it's interesting because she had just moved back to New York at that time. She had famously, you know, written an essay, goodbye to all that. When she left New York after the Vogue years and then she and John came back and she really like interrogates the city. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's worth pointing out that uh, at the time of the, the the wilding attack, as it allegedly was, um, a certain Donald Trump took out a full page ad in the New York Post demanding the death penalty be instituted <laughs> in New York State for those guys who have all subsequently been proven innocent. So. She's on the right side of the history there, that's for sure. Yeah, and he's never, ever apologised for that. Has of course he, he won't. No. He apologize has he anything. ever apologised for anything? <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, I forgot. He's never apologised for anything. Um, you're quite right. So, Evelyn, given the LA themes we've touched on so far in this episode, we've selected a suitable new audio interview for the week's homepage, which it sort of ties in some degree with the music scene you wrote about in your incredible runaways book and mark is going to tell us about it yeah this is martha davis the motels it's on the release of the anthology land compilation steve rosa did the interview in february 2001 and after some initial stuff about maintaining korean music because she's still continuing to make music and as late as 2001 uh, she talks about her influences folk then soul music then the beatles and bowie She's from San Francisco. This is the first thing to remember. And the first motels were started in San Francisco. She moved them down to L.A. in the middle of the mid-70s. And they had to start putting on their own shows. And they they were a big part of the development of a a new club scene for new bands in Los Angeles. Uh, Jasper, let's have a listen to the first clip. There was no place for us to showcase. So it was really, really difficult. So we put together our own thing. The motels, the dogs, and the pop, three local groups put together a thing called Radio Free Hollywood, in which we sort of did a grassroots, basically show we rented a hall, and did, and, which was fairly successful. I mean, we pretty much packed the place. And a few weeks after that, they started, the Starwood called us and said, would you like to play there? So it was like there wasn't a scene at all. And then there was a scene, and we don't know how much we really had to do with it, but it was pretty coincidental. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, uh-huh. it was short. And I think, it, you know, as in any, any market, like, all they have to know is that will, it will actually make money. I mean, she slightly conflates two things uh, in that bit because she then talks about how the knack getting signed was the key thing. But in fact, what she's really talking about is the first motels, which is the mid-70s, moving to L.A., and opening up venues like Madame Wong's and the Starwood and so on and so forth, the new bands. So, you know, it was tough. She had two children. She had them very, very young. She's a teenage mom. Her, her parents, actually, from what she describes, sound quite interesting as people. Her, her mother was actually kind of 
quite bohemian and sort of in, had some really interesting stuff, which she sort of hoovered up. But then, like, putting together the second motels with the Girard brothers, and she's living in Echo Park as a single mom. Let's listen to this, this, this clip. This is, this is very interesting. We lived in Echo Park in this totally scary house with these paint-sniffing guys down below. And, like, it was just, it was a nightmare. It was, pro- it was the low point of the existence, you know. Mm. I, I really, because I was really scared that this was all a big mistake. You know, there's that thing gnawing at you. And your kids, my daughter was looking at me like, Mom, if you ever make it, can I just have some new socks? <laughs> How pitiful is that? We walked the loneliest mile we smile without any style we kiss all together <laughs> as the author of mama rama uh, evelyn i thought that might that might, that might touch you um, yeah is- yeah the the difficulties of being a parent and trying to have a career in a creative industry at the same time and be part of a scene yeah Really tough, really tough. I mean, two young girls, I think she's a single mother. She's living with these paint-sniffing guys downstairs in Echo Park. And the motels at that point are not, you know, they're not going to make it. They didn't make it till, till, till later. And things sounded like they were pretty bleak. But I'm interested to, to ask you, Evelyn, about you know, your take on on that scene, you know, we're talking 76, this Radio Free Hollywood show, August 76 at the Troopers Hall. Runaways are already, you know, obviously up and running. What, what, is, your, what is your take on mid-70s LA as it sort of lurches into the punk rock era? Right. Well, I realize I'm talking with someone who's really an expert on it, um, Barney. Yeah, you're, you're, um, you're a native Californian. Uh, but I, yeah, I actually was born in, in L.A. I am actually a third generation mm, Californian. Um, so I, I uh, do feel very connected to the city, but I'm not I'm not the historian of it that you are, though. I'm I'm trying to be, become more and more once now that I've moved back there as an adult. So yeah, that was the period that the you know Runaways were still pretty new, but were playing places like the Starwood. I think then they were you know teenage girls, and I, the thing that always interests me about so many things interest me about the Runaways, but the fact that they were at, when they started five different teenagers who lived in, all around this big suburban sprawl that is L.A., and they had to try to like come together and rehearse, which is just such a like LA story, um, which is why some of them ultimately ended up living with their manager, producer, Kim Fowley, Joan Jett and Lita Ford actually moved in with him in Hollywood. And then they all famously then got their own place. One of these storied apartment buildings where lots of parties were thrown, a fairly decadent scene. You know, there's also a documentary out now that's about a, a couple years later and the emergence of the the punk scene in mm-hmm. Los Angeles at in Chinatown and and the clubs there mm-hmm. the runaways were sort of like the middle point i think between that early pop scene and the sort of like degraded decadent pop moment that they represent yes yes and then the knack are sort of the knack of the opposite of of that in many ways aren't they but that was sort of 
the knack success meant that suddenly all these kind of skinny tie, you know, new wave power pop bands were, were being hoovered up by by the majors. And the motels do get signed to Capitol. It's interesting. They've had a, a sort of resurgence of like, partly due to the bear, that fantastic series on Disney plus the, the great song total control is, is heard in series two. And it's sort of, you know, it's given Martha a, a new a new lease of life. They then had, I mean, it then took them another what like three years to score a top ten hit with only the lonely. So they sort of became this sort of you know almost archetypal early MTV era LA band. Yeah, she talks she talks in the interview about enjoying the process of doing things like making the videos. Actually, that one of the things that kept her going was her pleasure in the process she loves she says i love going rehearsing i love rehearsing my band i love being in the room rehearsing the band you know which not a lot of people would say you know and and, and she, she she really felt engaged by the process of make of making videos and so on and so forth she's very mm. entertaining in this audio interview i must say i mean i i, I really like good laugh listening she's, to, got, she's laugh. got a great laugh and <laughs> yeah she's i mean i was never like a sort of huge motels fan no. just as i was never a huge knack fan but um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a little more open to some of this stuff i think total control is is, is a pretty great little record i must say I mean, we could talk. We could talk a, a little bit about Britney Spears, a sort of later iteration of the kind of LA pop machine. She's publishing her autobiography next week, as I'm sure we all know. And so we've made her the featured artist on the homepage, Evelyn, including a live review that you wrote of a Staples Center show in 2011. I'd just be fascinated to know. I mean, are you are you likely to read her autobiography? And what what do you what do you think about Britney Spears now in twenty twenty three? Yeah, I I mean, I'll read her autobiography at some point, and but not it's not going to go high on my pile of, of books. But I'm interested. Or you know what? I'll probably hear enough about it through other sources that maybe I I won't need to read it. I don't know. I'm it's a testimony to how interested people are in Britney Spears that this is getting the amount of attention that it is in the midst of everything else that is going on in our, yeah. our world. And frankly, <laughs> Britney Spears is not in top of my mind right now, partly because I'm on tour, but you know, <laughs> think other world events are sadly eclipsing her. <laughs> yeah. I will say that I'm thank you for pulling up that piece from the LA times, because I had actually been thinking about Britney Spears when I watched the, the Eras tour movie, Taylor Swift's movie, right? Mm. And just thinking about how Britney was doing this kind of huge pop spectacle before Taylor was and the differences in their narratives and, and then what's happened to them also, I think says says something about maybe that the music industry has some made some progress, but also how hard Taylor has fought for autonomy and and self expression and and controlling her life and her sure. her image. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was you know in the kitchen, my girlfriend's house the other day, and Hit Me Baby One More Time came on the radio, and I thought, what a fantastic record that was.
part of my job, I re- I'm, you know, I'm reading the music press from the, the late 90s, and it's, you know, it's Britpop, and it's all these rock and roll bands playing kind of really traditional guitar drums. And actually, you know, what Britney was doing was so much better. It's really yeah. great. Those first two albums are great pop music. And I think if you listen to Piece of Me, which still stands out as an incredible piece of production, and mm. see, I mean, it's a fantastic takedown of tabloid press with such a knowing edge. It just mm. sounds even more prescient and strange now. But unfortunately, the way she's represented and the way she allowed herself to be represented, I guess, we're going, we're going to talk about you know the, the Rolling Stone cover and all of this sort of infantile sexualization that was part of the package of Britney in 1998, Yeah, so in the context of sort of Wenergate, as I think you, you've dubbed it yourself, Evelyn, how are you looking at Jan Wenner's legacy at the moment? Not not very favorably. <laughs> um, I, and I, you know, haven't for a long time. And as, though, as I said, you know, I was someone who grew up reading Rolling Stone and, you know, of course there was great journalism in it and great journalists that that worked there and, and not to disparage those accomplishments. And, and you wrote for it uh, yourself. I did write for it myself. Yes. For several years. Yeah. And I, I completely crashed my head against the glass ceiling that, that right. Jan Wenner had erected. I mean, I, I personally experienced that for sure. You know, I actually, after the New York times piece came out and, and he got fired from the rock and roll hall of fame, which was, you know, I definitely had a drink on that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, for background for your readers, I've been spending, you know, the last like eight years doing really documenting the statistics of the exclusion of women from the rock and roll hall of fame. I've been yep. keeping count yep. of how yeah. many women have been inducted mm. and, you know, like, uh, which is about eight percent of the inductees are women. It's just so horrific, and <laughs> and so we, I actually my uh, research assistant and I uh, went and looked at the uh, all the covers of Rolling Stone magazine and counted how many men and how many women <laughs> and how many people of color, how many white people were on it. And you know, it's similarly, it's not as bad as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's it's basically eighty percent white, eighty percent male. It has been throughout its aggregate history you know which that's not that's not the face that's not what popular music has been it's just it's Mm. just not yeah people like oh yeah he just made a stupid comment and he's canceled and you know he shaped the way yeah we think of popular music history his work for rolling stone and then he institutionalized it in Mm. the rock and roll hall of fame and it's going to take years of work to recreate what was really the story of popular. I mean, of course, a lot of historians and journalists like us have been doing that. But, he, you know, he's been the gold standard for Rolling Stone was the gold standard for music yeah. journalism and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has been. So, I, you know, I, I it's going to be up to us to really create the, the, the new narratives. Well, not only was he the gatekeeper with Rolling Stone, but he also, in moving to New York, invented celebrity journalism, basically. You know, thank you, Jan, for that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> you know, Us magazine, Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jasper, what's your I just wanted to go briefly back to, to Brittany, because one of the pieces that we're featuring is Stephen Daly's Rolling Stone 
story. And that concludes on a kind of, I mean, this is 1999. And reading this is is kind of peculiar given everything that's happened since with Free Britney and all of that kind of leads one to read it in a certain way, at least led me to read it in a certain way. But he writes, whatever Britney Spears ends up growing into, quote unquote, she stands today as the latest model of a classic product, the unneurotic pop star who performs her duties with vaudevillian pluck and spokesmodel charm. As Spears herself says, it's not supposed to be in-depth. That doesn't mean I haven't worked really hard. Then again, if you're standing in a bar in some bar 10 years hence and baby one more time comes on in the jukebox, you will smile and you will move. And it's like it, it that kind of gets to the heart of for me like like you said Mark, they're fantastic pop records. It can't really be understated how good mm. those records are as as pop songs. But then this kind of great sadness, I mean that that she's this She's at that point the unneurotics pop star who then gets committed by her family mm. to you know various rehab That's institutions and various other. It's just it, you know it's it's really kind of brutal to read that. And I mean I think that the free Britney movement actually from being initially. I remember when I was a kid there was like a, a meme. There was someone crying, "Leave Britney alone," and that was that was like funny because it was why should we listen? You know, she's a pop star. She deserves what she gets, whatever. And for that to become the actual mainstream approach to Britney, mm. i.e. leave Britney alone being the sort of central thing about free Britney, mm. it's on the one hand great that that happened. But on the other hand, how was it ever allowed to happen the way that it did to begin with? Yeah. Very interesting. So we are now going to talk about another very different kind of female artist, maybe the sort of the sort of polar opposite of Britney in some ways, Carla Bley, the great jazz composer, arranger, whose escalator over the hill I bought many years ago and had my mind blown by. And I also, you know, have the Liberation Music Orchestra album. I mean, that... that that whole area of jazz, Charlie Hayden, and so forth, is absolutely fascinating to me. I'm going to ask, you know, Mark and Jasper, just to put Carla Blay in a bit of context here. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, she's quite extraordinary because um, there are multiple Carla Blays, plural. You know, she, she didn't just produce one kind of music uh, with variations over a period of her life. I mean, she came out of very much the sort of free improvisation scene and so on and so forth in New York, associated with the likes of Don Cherry, Ornette Coleman and, and, and the like, what was called at the time the new thing. But then she went on to do all these other things. I mean, you talk about Escalator Over the Hill. I actually listened to that yesterday for the first time for a long time really loud at home and it absolutely knocked me flat it's a such a fascinating record yeah. you know i mean it's it's a double album it sprawls triple it, 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 it triple album absolutely yeah. right it, hour and a half long it, it took something like a year to make in bits and pieces scrabbling she, I, I read her own article about making the album and it's like pulling things in from pulling musicians in when they were in town finding studios trying to raise money just to get this record done and it's extraordinary. We've got this fantastic interview, Brian Case, wonderful Brian Case, wrote the NME in 1975. And she's talking about, I can't remember, she, she's riffing about something. And she says at the end of it, she says, musicians in better times are just left to play music. Which point, Brian says, for what purpose? Self-expression. She says, absolutely not. Disgusting. 
Number one, to create order on a small scale, the kind of order that we'd like to see on a larger scale, the kind of order that holds the stars on their paths, can be recreated on a smaller scale in a piece of music. And when we're able to do that and record it, then you have a communique that will get to a lot of people who need this to be reaffirmed. And in a sense, it's mellowing out a lot of people who otherwise might go absolute bats. Myself, when I hear a very beautiful piece of music, it can keep me going for like weeks afterwards. I realize how important perfect things are. They help me just as much as getting by on it as a loaf of bread. I don't believe in self-expression at all, which is why I can't stand free improvising situations anymore or jamming situations. I'd much rather work on my own little piece of perfection and then send it around to my friends. And yeah, that that that's where she is. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Really Jasper, what that. does Carla what does Carla Blaine mean to a jazz fan of your generation? <sighs> it's she's <laughs> such, was such a remarkable composer. I think it's really. I mean, I, I added yes. this week a piece, uh, a live review by by John L. Waters, who saw her perform at Queen Elizabeth Hall in two thousand and nine. So relatively late. At first glance, Carla Blaine's current band, The Lost Chords, looks like just another jazz quartet. Then you listen to what they play and realize mm-hmm. that Blaze's compositions are like nothing else on the planet, full of irony, mystery, color, melody, harmony, and grooves. You know, it's so full, I think, is the, is, is the thing. It's so, it is, has that kind of completeness that she's yes. talking about. Yes. And I just think, yeah. you know, listening to her over the last couple of days, it's, it's, there's such beautiful, beautiful music. And there's something fantastic. And I have to credit Richard Williams for this observation from his Blue Moment newsletter blog that he writes. It seems so true to Carla Bley's nature, such a characteristically mordant mixture of the sad and the funny, that her last album should have been called Life Goes On. <laughs> I just think that's so, such a great observation. And, and it's, it is just it perfectly sort of captures captures her she did continue until the very last making interesting music i think that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's remarkable. yeah extraordinary woman We also lost Dwight Twilley, beloved of power pop aficionados. Um, I I had a copy of Twilley Don't Mind, and I don't mind saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it stands up pretty well. Not as great as the best big star records, but an interesting an interesting guy. Did you ever Did you ever listen to Dwight Twilley, Evelyn? Did he mean anything no, to you? No, not, not really. Two geeky boys. It's sort of boys geeky stuff, really, isn't it? <laughs> I, I I don't know. I just, um, I'm, and I've, I've been on the road, so I haven't had the chance to like, yeah. you know, usually I would go play someone, but um, I've been on the road all, all this week. So I can't even remember what the big hit was. I mean, I, I listened to that, but the Toy, Toy Twilly band, but yeah. <laughs> I'm on fire. He, he's, he's a footnote in the whole Leon Russell Shelter Records story. He was signed by Lynn Russell, then kind of got lost in the, the the collapse of the label and everything like that. So any sort of real geeky music historians, it's worth finding out about the Lynn Russell connection to, <laughs> to, to Dwight. It's a very unfortunate name, isn't it? Dwight Twilly. It doesn't really kind of speak of rock and roll. <laughs> um, Sorry, Dwight. <laughs> yes. We, we also lost DJ Mark the 45 King. Um, we... 
are running, um, the only piece which really references him. Uh, Mark, do you want to just tell us briefly about the 45 Well, King? I mean, he, he was involved in all kinds of great hip-hop. I mean, yeah. he, you know, there was a period in the late 90s when I believe substance abuse sort of derailed his career. But uh, the the... For me, the fabulous stuff is the the first, the early Queen Latifah stuff is just just fantastic, and and then later on, of course, he was the guy who sampled Dido and Stand by Eminem, which you know mm. did quite a lot for both their careers. But mm. no, I mean, really, a super good producer. Initially, you know, he was, a, he was a, as it says, he's a DJ, fanatical about forty five singles, seven inch singles. That was his thing. Massive collection. He adopted sampling as you sort of had to, but but was always musical and creative in the use of the stuff. I mean, the nine hundred number is sort of like oh, that's one fantastic. of the one of the moments of sampling. It's he samples Marva Whitney's "Unwind Yourself," just just the sax intro to that track, and just loops it, and it's yeah. just irrepressibly good. Like you, it doesn't, you know, it's what thirty years since it came out or whatever, but it's just like incredible, incredible. Yeah bit of sampling incredible just so funky and such a clever bit of music production yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. i mean yeah. the, the the piece we're running on the site is actually is is good because he basically gets half the articles mostly on queen latifah but a lot of it is about him and he talks with some detail about his his processes and he sounds also like a by all counts he's a really nice guy right Oh well, you can catch some really great mixes of him on on YouTube, Boiler Room, and places like that. Mm, Still spinning forty mm. five, so it's worth checking those out. Yeah, yeah. Folks, we've got just time for you to tell us about some of the pieces you've added, and Evelyn, if anything strikes you as interesting or if you've got anything to say about any of the artists that mark or jasper mentioned just raise your hand and jump in and tell us whatever the story is i'll keep it fairly short this time i mean it's a very interesting pete johnson la times interview with roger mcguinn from 1968 birds and it's, it's basically about crosby going we worked as a foursome and that was all right but David was always a very acidic character. He was always eating to somebody. He was starting to lose interest in the group. It was sort of an underdog group by this time. And his buddies in Buff- Buffalo, Springfield, and Jefferson Airplane were saying, come on, David, you can do better than that. And he was saying, yeah, man, but I've got to be loyal to McGuinn and Hillman. I can't let them down. Being noble and everything. And all this time, we were wishing he'd split because he was heavy, hard to handle, being a little too outspoken and hit for the wrong reasons. And he started getting very like a tyrant on the material. Mm. I, I, that's, I think that's a very nice <laughs> little detail about the breakup. Well, it's, it's also perfect in that the birds shows at Ciro's, uh, in particular on the Sunset Strip, really is, I'm sure Evelyn would agree with me, probably the birth of the sort of L.A pop scene and everything kind of comes out of that doesn't it so yeah good good stuff mark this week laurie anderson interviewed by richard harrington washington post in 1981 i mean it's worth remembering that oh superman got to number two in the pop charts in england in 1981 which is just astonishing you know <laughs> uh, would that such a thing could happen ever again someone's <laughs> got to make another record like oh superman first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah someone could and it wouldn't get to number two in the pop charts Let's try it. Well, let's try it. This is when I first started doing performances. People thought humour was a trick, a disguise for banality. Yet the art world at that time was that point was heavy, heavy minimal aesthetics. You can flip that over. 
seriousness can be a disguise for utter banality, which I think is pretty, pretty Mm. good. I've got others, but I'll leave it at that for for, for today. Jasper, you got anything? I'll just mention two things, as I often do. First of which is Steve Goodman, who's also known as the, you know, the producer Code 9, interviewed by Rob Fitzpatrick in the Sunday Times in 2009. And he, he, Steve Goodman founded Hyperdub, the label. And I just there was an interesting detail in the article. You know, he, he sort of founded, founded Hyperdub and sort of is sometimes credited with, with pioneering dubstep as a genre but Rob Fitzpatrick writes in 2001 while living in Brixton Goodman began Hyperdub as a webzine a place he could go into as much depth as he liked about the music he loved it was a way to get writers like Simon Reynolds and Codro Eschen together in one place he says this was the peak of UK garage but it wasn't getting covered anywhere we'd have interviewed people like Miss Dynamite as well as early dubby proto grime and two-step the scene only generated its own hype-filled press and everyone else just wrote about the negative aspects I was only interested in the music, but after two or three years, it fizzled out. I'd interviewed everyone I wanted to interview. Well, we, we must get this publication on, on Rock's Back Pages. We must <laughs> yeah. get him on Rock's Back Pages yeah. as a writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, totally, it, was, totally. it was a great, great, worth reading the piece if you have any interest in that period of electronic music. And I mean, Burial as well was on Hyperdub, that classic, classic record. It was amazing. Evelyn, you must have crossed Simon Reynolds' path in, in Los Angeles at some point. Not as often as okay. you would think, which again speaks to the atomized nature of well, Los how Angeles. Huge, like how you, huge we're it at is the as well. opposite ends of the the Harbor Freeway, the one ten. He's up in Pasadena, and I'm down in San Pedro. Um, but he did come to uh, speak to my class, a uh, music journalism class oh, good, that, I, that I have once. Yeah, yeah. So I um, once spent yeah. a very very happy afternoon in San Pedro with the Minutemen back in. It would have been like <laughs> 1982. They were having a barbecue. And the late, great Dee Boone was still with us. It was very, very jolly. Very, very jolly. Barbecue <laughs> I, with I with love Mike San Pedro. And I, yeah. I just saw George Hurley play at the local bar uh, like two weeks oh, ago. Nice. The drummer, oh, the drummer for the Minutemen still still around, as is, is Mike Watt. They're still there in Pedro. Their great. stuff sounds really good now. I mean, it stands up in a way that a lot of that sort of material doesn't. You know, it's, 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 it's musically really interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. My gosh. What's the other piece yeah. you've got, Jasper? And lyrically. <laughs> yeah. I'll conclude on Vintage Vision, The Future Shock of Herbie Hancock by Michael A. Gonzalez in Ebony in November 2013. And it, he talks to a variety of people about basically how cool Herbie Hancock is. But he interviews keyboardist from Burnt Sugar, Micah Goff, who says, Herbie has always been that dude with swag. He's like the James Bond of jazz, which I thought was a really great <laughs> description of Herbie Hancock. And I think what's also key is Michael A. Gonzalez quotes from an interview that was in Musician in the 80s, where Hancock says, I was not trying to make a jazz record with Headhunters. It came out sounding different from anything I could think of at the time, but I still wasn't satisfied because in the back of my head, I wanted to make a funk record. And of course, you know, it is a funk record, but it's <laughs> it's not at the time. So I just, it's, it's, it's again, just a, a good piece. Michael Agon's always, always writes well. Yeah, great. I love Headhunters. I love Headhunters as well. What's yeah. Record? Brilliant. Well, <laughs> I think that concludes the episode. Uh, it's been really wonderful um, having you with us, Evelyn. Do visit Rocksback Pages, where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and listen to over 800 audio interviews. Check to see if your local library subscribes to RBP, and if not, maybe suggest they take a trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. Thank you again so much for joining us. The very best of luck with your tremendous Joan Didion book, Evelyn. Where's the next stop on your tour? 
I'm going back to LA on Saturday. I'll be reading at a, a place called the book jewel. Oh. So yeah, driving back, back driving today. all the way back to LA. I am driving all right. the way back to LA. Yeah, oh, that's, that's what we do I here wish, in California. I wish I could join you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's wonderful. But listen, very on best of luck with the book. And yeah, it's, it's all really your good. Future endeavors. Really good. It's been great pleasure having you with us today. So um, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Great. Oh, good. And so good. pleased. We'll, we'll be back in a fortnight with the legendary photographer Kate Simon, who's going to be talking to us about her career and, and particularly about all the amazing pictures that she took in Jamaica and her friendship with Bob Marley and all of that. So we will now say goodbye to all of you listeners out there. Bye. Bye. That concludes episode 163 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to a special guest, Evelyn McDonnell. Her latest book, The World According to Joan Didion, is published by Harper One and available now. Hosts are Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Thank you.